Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And this is part two of the podcast which we started last week, which is Risks in Property Investing and Developing. Now, you may recall last week I had a great question from Justine via Messenger. And in it she said, I've enjoyed the first couple of podcasts with you at the helm. Something I'd love to know more about is the risks in property investment and developments. I'm excited and motivated thanks to the educational content and inspirational stories, but I'd like to understand more about where things can go wrong and how to reduce the risk. Many thanks, Justine. That is a great question, and obviously a very sensible thing to do before you start in property is to think about where things can go wrong, and not just to go naively plowing ahead. So that's a great way to start. Now in the last podcast, we looked at what risk actually means, and how we can cope with it so that we can make informed decisions around risk, and not be emotionally motivated in our decision making, so that we don't get sort of held hostage by the fear of risk, as it were. But in this, the second podcast on risk, we're going to be looking at the second part of Justine's question, which was to understand more about where things can go wrong in property and how to reduce the risk. Now, you may recall that in part one, I explained how I think many people actually think that the words scary and risky are the same. But actually, they're not. And I hope that in the last podcast, I covered that, and you'll see that's the case. If you haven't heard that podcast, by the way, probably pause now, go back and listen to that other podcast because it will give you the sort of foundational knowledge to know where I'm coming from when I explain how we can actually apply this specifically to property. And if you remember back to last week, you'll also remember that I gave my opinion that we're all on a scale, that we're all individuals, we all have a different attitude towards risk. At one end of the scale are those who are very cautious sometimes so cautious that unfortunately they end up doing nothing and we don't want to be at that end of the scale. Whilst at the other end of the scale are those who are so reckless that they're almost indulging in a form of gambling or speculation. And as I told you, as I am sort of open and honest and frank about it, I'm a little bit over halfway towards the reckless end of the scale, although hopefully I'm not reckless. And one of the reasons why I'm not is because of the process which I explained to you in some detail in part one. And I also explained that far from living risk-free lives, if we want to be in property, because there's no such thing as a risk-free property or any risk-free activity, actually, if you think about life in general, nothing is really risk-free. Really, rather than trying to avoid risk, we should all be trying to embrace risk, but learning how to measure and managing it. And one way to measure and manage it, my way, not the only way, but it's a way which works for me, is to think about the probabilities, in other words, to consider the possible outcomes of taking a particular course of action and to think what the probability is of that outcome occurring. Then we can look at what all those different outcomes are, think about the likelihood of each outcome actually happening and to decide whether we can live with those or whether we can't. And if we can, fine, we can carry on. And if we can't, maybe we can change the activity to produce a different outcome. So I hope you found all that helpful. As I say, Probably, if you didn't listen to last week, it'd be helpful to go on pause, go and listen to it now, and then come back, and then we'll talk about specifics in property. So going back to Justine's question, 
Justine said she wants to know where things can go wrong in property and how to reduce the risk. Now the thing is, with all the different strategies and techniques around today, I could actually do podcast after podcast talking about all the different things that could go wrong with each strategy. And to be honest, I don't propose to do that. And there's a very good reason why I'm not going to do that, which I'll explain at the end. But what I will do is look at perhaps some of the more generic risks, or to be even more accurate, what are the perceived risks? And I'm using the word perceived very deliberately because I said in the last podcast that a lot of the risks which we imagine there are in property and in every area of our life, to be honest, they're often down to our own lack of experience or lack of knowledge or even a misunderstanding or misinformation. And that's going to apply across all property strategies. There's going to be perceived risks which actually aren't real risks. So let me have a look at some of these generic risks and then we can decide what's the best way of mitigating them because the last part of Justine's question is actually how to deal with all this with the implication she wants to know how to avoid these bad things happening. So the first generic risk which I want to look at, a risk which probably applies across all strategies, is the worry or the concern that the market will crash when I buy my property and I'll lose all of my money. And this is a big worry which I hear a lot of the time, particularly from beginner investors and new investors. And to some extent we touched on this in the last podcast because we looked at a very similar question. We looked at how to deal with the risk that the market will crash when I buy my property. But we've taken this a little bit further in this question because it's not just that the property market will crash, but that I will lose all of my money as a result. So the objection, the worry that I hear is the market will crash when I buy my property and I'll lose all my money. Now, do you remember last time I suggested that we look at the possible outcomes and the probability of those outcomes? Well, I'm not going to revisit those now because we went through that in some detail last time, other than to say that the ultimate conclusion was that the risk of the market crashing, particularly if it's crashing just after I buy my property, was negligible. And it's probably even more negligible just after I buy my first property. But you'll have to listen to the last podcast if you haven't already heard that to hear why I say that. But what about the idea of losing all of my money? Well, firstly, in all my years in property, I've never known a time when property was worth zero. So that risk is so small as to be negligible. I can't envisage any circumstances, to be honest, where property is going to be worth zero. So I hope that sort of helps alleviate a lot of people's fears. I suppose if there's a nuclear war or something and, I don't know, the whole financial system collapsed, maybe we could talk about properties being worth zero. But I've never known it. If you look back through history, I can't imagine it or see a time when property was worth zero. So we can get rid of that doubt and that worry and that risk now altogether. But what if we put money into a deal, say we had a 75% loan-to-value loan, and we put in, say, the 25% as the balance from our own funds? Could we lose all of our own money then, if the market crashed? Well, yes, of course we could, but let's just think about that. If the market was to crash 25% and we'd put in 25% as a balance on top of our 75% loan-to-value loan, yes, that 25% could disappear. But going back to our previous podcast and the system, let's just have a think about that. Let's ask ourselves, what is the probability of the market crashing? Well, if you remember back to the last podcast, I came to the conclusion it's only happened twice in the last 35 years. So in terms of likelihood or probability, it's not very probable. 
So let's ask a secondary question with this. What is the likelihood of the property market crashing 25% or more? Well, if the market were to crash, then quite likely, based on past experience, it could crash 25%, but, and this is quite a big but, it's probably not going to happen immediately. Past experience shows that it could take anywhere from two to five years to fall to those levels. So if we thought the market was falling after we bought our property, could we make contingency plans? Yes, of course we could. If we needed to sell, for example, could we sell when the property market has only gone down by 5% before it hits 25%? Well, yes, of course we could. So again, when we look at the probability and when, when we look at the actual outcome, it's not very likely that we're going to lose all of our money in a split second on day one. And so we can plan around that. But let's be a little bit more positive because it seems that this risk is highly improbable anyway. But is there anything that we can do to actually mitigate our risk, which I think is what the gist of Justine's question is. What can we try and do to avoid this in the first place? Well, of course, there are a number of things that we can do. The first thing we can do is we can watch the market. And as far as it's possible, we can attempt not to buy at the top of the market. After all, it's only going to wipe us out completely if we buy at the top of the market. So if we can avoid doing that, then that's going to be a great help. Now, uh, I admit that that's not necessarily going to be easy. If we could ac accurately predict the market, then we'd all be multimillionaires, wouldn't we, Rodney? But there are signs that we can look out for. So, for example, a market that's over hot could be a warning sign not to be buying. It could be that prices are rising so rapidly that they're almost sort of eye-watering rising prices. We could perhaps see a clue as being the availability of cheap finance and the banks chucking cheap money at us like they did before the previous crashes. It could be because of high demand and low supply. And it could be simple things like just anecdotal stories of everybody we know wanting to become property investors. And those could give us some clues and warnings that now isn't the time to be buying, that we're getting too close to the top of the market. Now, as I say, it's not necessarily going to be that easy to predict the top of the market. If we can avoid it, then we're not going to get wiped out when the property market falls. But perhaps a better way is perhaps to do something which we do have more control of. And that could be to buy below market value. Because if we can build in a buffer, then if the market falls, then it's not going to have such a big impact on us if we can buy the property at a bargain price anyway, which is lower than the actual value at the point of time in which we buy it. Now again, depending upon market conditions, this might be easier said than done. But never say never. Good deals are out there. Below market value deals are out there to be found in all market conditions. And let's face it, being honest with ourselves, being able to find deals like those, particularly deals from motivated sellers, is why we make our money as property investors. So hopefully we're all out there looking for BMV deals anyway, as a matter of course. So that's one thing we can do. In the last podcast, we considered what would be the worst case scenario. And we also recognised that despite the fact that maybe the market falling 25% was the worst case, after every fall, there was usually, or there always has been, a recovery. Now, is a recovery guaranteed in the future? Well, I can't say for sure, but it's highly probable because of the cyclical nature of the market and the inflationary nature of the economy. So if that's the case, could we cash flow the property until the market recovers? Can we buy with cash flow to mitigate our risk? And of course the answer is yes, we can. There's only ever going to be a problem, really, 
if we have to sell. Otherwise, we can just sit it out and wait. So maybe the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, will I have to sell and what's the probability of me having to sell? If the answer to that is not at all, then we can sit it out and wait and wait for the market to recover, which is what a lot of investors did in the 1990s and in the late 2000s when the market fell. And the other great thing about having cash flow, of course, is that if we've got a good positive cash flow, we can actually save the surplus and use it for a rainy day, which will give us even more security and comfort if anything happened in the property market. So when we look at it objectively and analytically, there are two main things that we need to make a note of, really. First, the likelihood of the market falling by 25% is low anyway. In other words, there's a low probability. And even if it did... If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. in time the market would recover and there's a high probability of that but if the market did fall if we'd bought using BMV techniques and if we'd bought for cash flow and by using those as safeguards we can actually protect ourselves from the downside anyway now the key thing is to know how to protect ourselves from the, the downside and the key to that is very much going to be getting educated whether that be through formal progressive type education or just education through experience, and hopefully a combination of the two, because that will help us then to understand exactly what we need to do to mitigate the risks. So let's have a, a think about another generic risk in property or a perceived risk in property. And that's, I won't find any tenants after I buy my property. Or perhaps we can put it another way, what if I can't let my property? Well, yeah, that could be a worry. If we bought a property and we couldn't let it, no matter what your strategy, whether you're going for single let, buy to lets, or serviced accommodation, or HMOs, if you can't get any tenants in, that could be a big, big problem. Because if the property is mortgaged, which it should be, by the way, and if you're wondering why I'm saying that, perhaps that's a, a subject for a future podcast, but using other people's money is definitely part of the formula for success in property. So if it's mortgaged, which it should be, we might end up paying our mortgage from other income if we haven't got any tenants in the property paying us rent. Of course, if we don't have that other income, or if we have to subsidise the property for any length of time, that could have serious negative consequences on our finances. But let's think about this. Let's think about this objectively. And let's go back to the system and think about the probability of this. If we're buying a decent property in an area of decent demand, what are the chances of not being able to let it? Well, I'd say not very high, that's not very probable. In other words, if it's a decent property, and if you're asking a reasonable rent, then there's a very high probability 
that you're going to find a tenant. It may not be on day one, but certainly over the first week, two weeks, month, you're going to find a tenant. So again, this is probably more of a perceived risk, more of an irrational fear than what we could call a realistic risk. But is there anything we can do to mitigate this risk anyway? Of course there is, and we should think about this, and we should probably do these. Well, in fact, we definitely should do these. Because the first thing we should do is before we buy the property to rent it out, no matter what strategy we're using, we should always do our proper due diligence and investigate the rental market. We need to know the rental market in the area. We need to understand who our, like our tenants are likely to be. We need to understand what sort of properties tenants are looking for. We need to understand the amount of rents that they're going to pay. We need to understand what type of tenants we're going to be letting to. And from talking to letting agents, for example, we need to understand what the likely void periods are going to be. Void periods are the times when we don't have a tenant in paying rent. When we know all of that, we can then weigh the risks of not finding a tenant. If it turns out that that particular area or that type of property is virtually unlettable, then we can move on and find a property that is because it's absolutely key that we have the cash flow to cover our expenses. And I had a great example of this when I was looking at uh, a property in an area where I don't normally invest. I was looking at developing what we'd call a new gold mine area. And I saw a property which was uh, a single unit, but it had been converted into four flats. And I was very excited about this property. I could see a lot of potential in it. I rang up a, a local letting agent as part of my due diligence and told him about the property and said that I was thinking of buying it, and it was currently as four one-bedroom flats. And the letting agent said, look, he said, in theory, I can get you, I forget the exact amount, but it might have been like £400 a month per flat. He said, but if you do buy this property, please don't bring it to me. I really don't want to try and let it for you. And I said, oh, a bit taken aback. Why is that then? And he said, because I just won't be able to let it for you. He said, up in that area, if they were two bedrooms, he said, I'd let them all day long, but he said, there's just no demand in that area for one-bedroom flats. He's just never going to let them. Now, I wouldn't have known that. And if I bought that property thinking, yeah, it's a nice property, I'm going to find tenants easily, I could have been really disappointed. So, of course, what did I do? I didn't do the deal. I said, right, next, and I moved on. And that's why it's absolutely key that we do our proper due diligence, and part of that is going to be talking to letting agents. And I always suggest talking to a letting agent before you go talking to estate agents because you need to understand the rental market exactly for that reason, so that you know that you can cover your costs. So that's the first thing we're going to do to mitigate the risk. Second thing we're going to do is that when we've bought the property, we're probably going to appoint a good letting agent to advertise the property for us. Now, I know a lot of investors do their own advertising. That's absolutely fine. If you're confident of doing that, there's a lot of very good uh, internet-based letting portals, for example, that you can use relatively cheaply, which will find you loads of tenants. Personally, I don't want to do it myself. If you know me and if you've spoken to me, you'll know I don't want to manage my own properties, so I'd always get somebody else to do it. So in my world, I'd find a good letting agent, but if you're confident of doing it yourself, that's fine, but you need to use the right tools, which would be the right internet portals, for example. So that would be the second thing I'd do. Now, if having done my due diligence and if having appointed a great letting agent, I still couldn't let the property, it would suggest to me that I would need to reduce the rent. Because ultimately, to mitigate the risk in this situation, the bottom line is, if we offer the property at a reduced rent, or at a lower rent, 
we're always going to be able to rent it out. Every property is going to rent at the right price. So if the rent is low enough, we're going to get a tenant. Now, is that rent going to be enough to cover our overheads? I don't know. Again, we need to look at the probabilities and think about the different outcomes of that. Whenever we have the risk of being left with a property where we can't find a tenant, cutting the rent is usually 99 times out of 100 going to help us to get a tenant. And if, if, even if that didn't work, there's other things we could do as well. We could consider offering incentives, for example, whatever that may be. And you'd have to understand your local rental market and what the tenants in your rental market actually want to decide what an incentive could be. But it could be furnishing the property if it's unfurnished, or it could be putting in a microwave, or it could be adding white goods if you don't usually have white goods, for example. Or it could just be offering a rent-free period at the beginning of the tenancy. Or it could be offering a refund of rent at the end of the tenancy. Lots of different incentives we could use. Really, just to sum it up, the idea that a property will never be let is really a very unrealistic view. It's one of those risks which we worry about, but it's an irrational risk. There's always things that you can do to get a tenant in. So let's think about another one, another generic risk in property which could cover every strategy and that is what if I get a down valuation when I try and refinance my property? Well the implication of that would probably be that we're trying to follow the BRR model. BRR means buy, refurbish, refinance where we buy a property, add some value through a refurb and then get it refinanced so we can get all or most of our money back out and if it's not BRR it's going to be a very similar thing. So, for example, in commercial conversions, it'll be adding value by turning the property from an office building, for example, into residential flats. But there's usually a presumption that we can add value somehow in order to then refinance the property and get our money back out. So let's start by thinking, what's the likelihood of getting a down valuation? Well, I hate to say it, but very high. I'd say in this day and age, anecdotally from talking to other investors, probably it's an almost a certainty that we're going to get a down valuation. And if you don't get the down valuation first time round, second time round, you're almost certain to get one. It's going to happen. At some point in your investing career, you're going to get down valuations. So in that sense, if you think about it, it's actually not much of a risk, is it? Because a risk implies uncertainty. But I'm going to assume that at some point you will, or I will, we will get down valuations. That's just how it goes. That's just life. So if we assume that a down valuation is the most likely outcome, we can now decide whether this deal still makes sense to us. And perhaps that depends on how much the property is going to be downvalued by. Well, that is a fair point. And of course, that's not something which you're going to know until you get the valuation back from the valuer. But we can make some contingency plans. If it's only downvalued a bit, can we still get our money back out? Yes, maybe. Yeah, okay, Does that, is that going to be enough for us to carry on with the deal? Yeah, maybe, in which case we carry on. If it's going to be downvalued a lot though, is there anything I can do? Is that going to kill the deal? Well, let's plan for that as well. Can we mitigate that risk? Well, yes, of course we can. We can decide that if the downvaluation means that we can't get out enough money to make the deal actually stack up, we can think about going perhaps to do a, a, a different bank perhaps taking out a loan with a different bank and seeing whether they will give us a, a better deal. Chances are, that one of the advantages are with going to a different bank, is that they'll send out a different valuer and they may give a better valuation. 
At the same time, to mitigate our risk, we could think about appointing a good or even a great broker, a great mortgage broker who's going to help us through the maze and help us to get the outcome that we want. And we can think about influencing the valuer when they come along to do the valuation in any case. And I do mean legally. I'm not talking about brown envelopes. I'm not talking about anything manipulative. But we can go and meet the valuer at the property. We can show the value around and show what we've done to add the value. Perhaps we can even try and be helpful and collect details of comparables in the area which support our opinion of value and give them to the valuer. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to make sure that they are true comparables, that they really are similar properties of a similar size, of a similar specification, but any help we can give the valuer will probably be appreciated. But having said all of that, what is the worst that will happen? Well, perhaps if despite all of that, we still get a large down valuation, which means that we can't get all of our money back out instantly, maybe the result of that is we're just going to have to wait a year or two until the market catches up again. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, could I live with that outcome? And maybe if that's the very worst outcome, it's not such a bad outcome, is it? It's frustrating, but it's not terminal. Maybe we just say, well, yeah, OK, I'll just live with that. I'll take my chances. And if I have to wait a year before I can remortgage re the property, if I've got to wait for the market, then so be it. I'll do it. Frustrating though it is. If, on the other hand, your answer is definitely not. I need to keep moving on. I've got my goals. I want to achieve them. I need to be buying five properties a year and that will hold me back then perhaps the answer is to say, right, well, the risk is too great in this property. I need to concentrate on properties and projects where the increase in value is self-evident. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Perhaps another way, though, and a way which is becoming more and more popular nowadays, is to think about lining up different sources of finance. Maybe find a JV partner so that if there's a down valuation, and if you can't pull all of your money back out, Rather than waiting for the market to increase, maybe you can top up your funds using borrowed money from a different source, like JV Partners or a more creative source of finance. So that would work as well. So I hope you're finding this helpful, thinking about some of the generic risks in property. And I hope that as we go through them, you can see actually that the worst outcome in most instances actually isn't a terrible outcome, actually, is it? And it's usually an outcome which we can work around and which we can actually do something about. So let's carry on with my list. Number four, what if the bank won't lend to me when I refinance? Similar to the last point, but slightly different, because this is where the bank is saying, no, we're not, not, not just going to knock the amount that we'll lend you, we're just not going to lend to you at all. And this is quite a common worry. A lot of investors worry that they may not be able to get any money at all from the bank. But again, if you think about it, it's probably one of those things which we worry about, but isn't based on reality. Because if we buy a decent property in a reasonable area, and particularly if it's a property which is readily rentable, and particularly so after we've done our refurb, and if our personal credit score is adequate, and if we're earning the minimum required income, then the chances are, or should I say using our language, there's a high probability that a bank somewhere are going to lend you the money. So the probability of a bank not lending is very low. The probability of a bank lending is very high. But is there anything I can do to mitigate this risk? Well, yes, of course there is. We can buy properly. Again, we do our due diligence, make sure that we're buying the right property. We need to look after our credit score so that the bank, when they do their credit search on us, think that we're lendable. Having a good broker is always going to help, and I'd always suggest using a broker. 
So those are three things that we can do. But if a bank really wouldn't lend to us, then the obvious solution is apply to a different bank. There are so many different banks out there and so many different products that there's usually a product for everybody. Somebody's almost certain to lend to you. What's going to happen is the, the outcome is probably going to be not that they won't lend, but they may just want to charge you a little bit more for the money that they do lend you, but you'll probably get the money. Or again, thinking back to the last point, what about lining up different funds, different sources of finance? What about having a JV partner in play just in case the bank won't lend? That could help, couldn't it? So again, when you think about it, when you look at it, it's not really that big a problem, is it? Okay, the next generic risk, a worry which I hear quite a lot of from all sorts of investors at different levels, is what if I can't find any deals? Well, again, it's the same old answer, isn't it? If you do the right things in the right way, it's really not very likely that you're not going to find any deals. If you find that you're not doing enough deals, then the chances are, or we could say the probability is, that you just aren't looking at enough properties. You just aren't making enough offers, because if you're looking at enough properties, if you're making enough offers, it's a numbers game. Eventually, one or two of them are going to stick, and you're going to be doing deals. It could be that you're not just talking to enough agents, you're not visiting the estate agents often enough. Maybe if you're doing sort of more creative ways of finding deals, you're just not running enough ads, or you're not leaving enough, dropping enough leaflets. Maybe you're not looking for enough JV partners who can help you source the properties and so on. There are plenty of things that we can do to mitigate that risk. So not finding deals really shouldn't be a problem. Generic risk number six. What if I pay too much? What if I pay too much for the property? And again, this is something which could affect every strategy. And this is a worry which I see particularly in new investors who worry that they might sort of spend all of their money on day one on a property which isn't worth what they think it's worth and then they're never going to be able to buy another property ever again. And again, the theme of this podcast is a lot of these fears are irrational, they're not real. Because what is the probability that we're going to pay too much? Well, again, if we do the right stuff, if we do our proper due diligence and research, it's not really very probable that we're going to pay too much for our property. And if you think about it, particularly if you're going to get finance, but finance from a bank, then there's a built-in algorithm to protect you anyway, because the bank are going to send the value around. And if they think you're paying too much money, boy, are they going to tell you, and they won't lend you the money. It's probably not going to happen, but let's just think about what would happen if it did happen. What if we did pay a little bit over the odds? Well, the reality is probably what's going to happen is we're just going to have to wait for the market to catch up a little bit, maybe wait a year or two before the market catches up. That might delay us a little bit on our property journey, but again, it's not a terminal mistake that's going to finish our property investing there and then. So again, I'd say I wouldn't worry too much about that. The way to mitigate this risk, definitely by understanding your strategy, knowing your strategy inside out, definitely by doing your due diligence and research, especially researching local sold prices, especially talking to local agents, and talking to other investors and comparing notes, for example. That's going to be very beneficial and help you keep a good handle on what the value of the property should be. And, of course, making low offers is going to help. So those are the six main risks or irrational fears that I come across in property all the time and the ways that we can mitigate them. I'm actually going to give you a bonus one now because there's one which I sort of come across quite often, particularly when I'm presenting at Masterclass down at Progressive HQ in Peterborough. 
And by the way, if you haven't done a masterclass, do come along. It's a great course to do. You're going to learn all the foundational stuff about property from myself and my co-presenters, Dixie Walker and Anne Holton. But one of the fears which we hear quite a lot is the fear, for example, of taking equity out of our own home to use to uh, help finance property investments. Now, when I started in property investing for myself about 20 years ago, the way that I started was by drawing equity out of my own home, by refinancing, remortgaging my own home, and using the equity which I was able to make available to use as deposits on investment properties. And by using the BRR model, by buying properties which I could refurbish and then add value to, and then refinancing and getting most or all of my money back out, over the years I was able to roll that up into my portfolio. Now, when I'm doing masterclass, I quite often say, show me your hand if you've got equity in your property, and hands will go up. And then I'll say, well, keep your hand up if you're prepared or thinking about taking the money out to use in investing. And at that point, a lot of the hands go down. A lot of people don't want to use the equity in their own home to invest in property. And when I say, that's interesting, why have you all put your hands down? The answer which comes back quite often is, well, it's risky, isn't it? As if it's a foregone conclusion, as if it's a self-evident answer. But is it risky? Is it risky? Because the way that I look at it is that if you were to take the equity out of your own home and then spread it around a few investment properties as deposits, for example, that equity hasn't disappeared. It's just in different properties. Now, of course, we've thought about all the things that could happen, like the market collapsing and them lo everybody losing their money, for example. But the probability of that is, in reality, very small. But here's the thing. If you're prepared to take the equity out of your property, out of your home, and use it to fund your investing properties, investment properties, you're going to be building a greater cash flow. You're going to have more properties, which, when the market is rising, are going to be catching that rise and producing equity. So the risk is actually to leave the money in your home, I'd say. The risk is not to remortgage. The risk is to do nothing. And as Rob Moore says, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. And that's a really good example of that. So that's a bonus one, which I've just thrown in for free. Think about using the equity either in your own home or your existing portfolio and see whether you can put that to better use, because otherwise it's just money sat there doing nothing. Now, the interesting thing is, having just been through my list of some of the sort of the generic risks that I think people think one could come across in property or the risks that are in property investing, the reality is, I think, that the things that are actually going to cause you problems are the things which you actually haven't even thought about. And that is often the case in life, isn't it? We can worry about stuff all the time and that stuff never happens. And then it's something which comes out the left field completely unseen, which sort of sneaks up and, and happens. So the sort of things which have sort of caught me out in the past, and again, these are quite generic and can happen no matter what your strategy are, are perhaps having an unexpected repair bill. Very common in property, but something which we should be budgeting for. How do we mitigate against that? Well, accepting that it's going to happen and trying to save some of our surplus cash flow so that we can pay the repair bill when it comes. It will happen. Or what about a tenant doing a midnight flit? Can that happen? Well, yeah, of course it can. That can happen quite often. How do we mitigate against that? Well, making sure that we vet our tenants properly, for example, by taking deposits so that if they do do a runner, 
we've still got money in the bank to cover the mortgage. But it will happen. These things do happen. When Rob and Mark first started in property, and I don't think they'd mind me sharing this because I've, I've heard them sharing this at, at various events, but one of the big problems they had when they first started was that their letting agent ran off with their rents and their deposits. Ouch! That's very uncomfortable, but I've heard of that happening to a number of investors. Another one, which perhaps we wouldn't necessarily think of happening, but which I know has happened to other people. Here's another one. What if the bank pulled the mortgage offer after you've exchanged contracts? Can they do that? Well, yes, sadly they can. And I was remembering the other day about investors in the late 2000s who had exchanged contracts to buy new build properties where they had exchanged contracts on the basis of a mortgage offer from the bank. But on the day of completion, the banks were pulling the mortgage offers because they suddenly decided that with the recession, they didn't want to buy new build properties because they decided the new build properties were overvalued. And the, the investors were left not able to complete because the bank pulled the money and they were then sued by the developers. Thankfully, that is a horror story which doesn't happen very often. So please don't let me put you off investing in property. The point I'm trying to make is it's quite often the things that you don't think about which are actually going to be the things that cause the problem. Another one. What if perhaps a vendor pulls out at the last minute? You've been negotiating to buy a property. You've had a survey. You've engaged a mortgage broker. You've applied for a loan. You've spent money having a survey. And suddenly the vendor pulls out. Can that happen? Well, yes, of course it can happen. And actually, that happened to me once, and I was left £20,000 out of pocket because it was a large HMO, 15-room 15, 15 HMO, which I was buying, and I'd spent £20,000 on fees in preparation for completion. Vendor pulled out at the very last minute. I didn't see that one coming. But the thing about this list is, gloomy though it is, the reality is that these things don't happen very often. And the probability of them happening, thankfully, are low. But let's not be naive. Occasionally, and hopefully it's very occasionally, something isn't going to go according to plan. And at that point, we have a choice, don't we? We're either going to deal with it or we're going to go to pieces. And personally, I think it's better to take a deep breath, put it down to experience and press on. Having any of these problems doesn't mean that getting into property was wrong. It just meant that that particular aspect of property at that particular time didn't work. And life just happens. So finally, how are we going to make sure that we are going to reduce our risks? Because even if we know how to handle and measure risk, ultimately, the less risk we have, the better life is going to be. Well, first and foremost, I'd suggest we need to get ourselves educated. And if you're listening to this podcast, Hopefully you're taking advantage of the excellent trainings provided by Progressive. As I've already said, come and join me on Masterclass. I'm one of the trainers. It'd be great to see you. But whether it's here or somewhere else, get yourself educated because education is absolutely key. Second thing we can do is to get a coach or a mentor. Somebody who's done it all already. Someone who can show you the way through all the different obstacles and help you over the bumps in the road. Somebody who can take you by the hand and reassure you that the sky isn't going to fall in when you have a bit of a trouble, when there's a bit of a blip. Again, you could sign up for VIP, which is a great way of checking in with a mentor once a month. Network, definitely network. Definitely get involved in your local group, whether that's a PPN or another networking group, doesn't matter. Just get out there, meet other investors, 
and learn from their experiences. Because again, you're going to find people who'll be able to say, well, actually, that happened to me. This is how I got around the problem, which is a great way to do it. Build a power team of experts to help you. If you've got the right people in your team, then you'll have access to all the knowledge and expertise you need to help you through most of the things that are ever likely to happen in property. And I'd suggest that one of the first people in your team, one of the key people in your team, has got to be a good mortgage broker. Whenever you buy a property, do your due diligence. Always research the market. And as I said earlier, start with the rents, because if you haven't got rent, you can't cover your costs. So start with rents, talk to letting agents, get to know the le letting market really well in your area. Then get to know sales prices so you know what sort of price you should be paying. That's going to mitigate most of the problems that you're ever going to have in property. Know your strategy. Know what works and what doesn't work. Know what type of property fits with your strategy. Know how to find that type of property and know how to get the right sort of finance for your, for your property. And again, a lot of that's going to come back to education. And on the subject of education, just make sure that you keep learning. Learning, learning, learning. Learning all the time. I'm still learning. We should all still be learning. I've been in property for over 35 years and I still keep finding stuff which I didn't know. And that's one of the great things about property. And then just one final thought, just to sort of finish on a positive note, because property is great. And just remember that probably 95% of the stuff that you worry about, maybe more, maybe 99% of the stuff that you worry about, will probably never happen. It will probably never happen. And even if it does happen, chances are you'll find that the outcome won't nearly be as bad as you fear, because that's just the way life works. So, I've been Peter Jones. This has been the Progressive Property Podcast. Do get, on, get in touch on Facebook. Join the community. Join the Facebook group. It'd be great to see you there. If you've got any questions, get them up on the Facebook group. And if uh, they're suitable for the podcast, I'd be delighted to cover them. So, here's to successful property investing. See you next week. Bye.